Well, good morning. I don't look much like Kendrick, do I? Say no. But you've seen me before. I'm Phil, if you've forgotten. I'm Melissa's dad, this beautiful young lady right here. And more importantly, and my wife Debbie's here with me again. Uh, and some of the grandkids here, I see Isaac back there. Sayla's out of town with her dad, and Max is somewhere else. Isn't it good to be together with God's people? And you know, the musicians do an incredible job. Would you say thank you to them one more time? They are talented, gifted. But you know, there's a difference between secular music and, what I, and spiritual music. We come to church because we believe there's a spiritual realm. Amen? Amen? We believe there's a God. What we can see and touch is not all there is. Now, music, physical music, is beautiful. And it can stir your soul. It, it can stir your emotions. But when God uses music in the spiritual realm, he stirs your soul. Amen? Amen. And when we sing together, the Bible says it ushers in the Holy Spirit. I don't understand it. It says God inhabits the praises of his people. And when we come together, it's, it's good to see each other. The fellowship is great. The music's great. But we really come here for a spiritual meal. And we come here for a spiritual refreshing. Amen. I hope that's why you're here. And maybe if you don't know the Lord, you, you're not connected that way. It's new to you. I want to challenge you today to pursue it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And the Bible says that if you seek the Lord with all your heart, you'll find him. You'll find him. Well, today, we're doing something different. Kendrick last week started a uh, series of sermons on the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I want you to know something. I have never preached on the book of Ecclesiastes. I got a confession to make. It's not one of my favorite books. Okay, I'm sorry. Is that all right if I tell you that? Okay. There's some good stuff in there. Don't get me wrong. And we'll look at some of it today. But it can be kind of a depressing book. It was written at least 2,500 years ago. And it was written by a man who was a king in Israel. Now, there's some dispute about who it was. Most people have always said, Solomon, I want you to know, I disagree, but who cares? I really think the author is a, is a king named Hezekiah. I haven't got time to tell you why, but... There is a, a guy much smarter than me. He's, he's a professor at a Baptist seminary, and he just wrote a 260-page thesis uh, for a new doctorate on Hezekiah as the author of Ecclesiastes. If you want to go look that up, if that whets your appetite, you may want to look at it. But the reason I thought Hezekiah could be the author is for two or three quick reasons. At least three times in this book, the author says... I was greater, wealthier in Jerusalem than all the kings before me. Well, how many kings were there in Jerusalem before Solomon? Just David as a king of Israel. And why would he say three times than all the kings before me? The other thing is, Hezekiah's life, he was a wonderful, and I preached to you, I think, about Hezekiah. He was a wonderful king, but he had no vision for the future. He was only thinking about his lifetime and his son Manasseh became king. Hezekiah was a godly king, but his son, 15-year-old Manasseh, was an ungodly king, terribly ungodly person. And the writings of the book of Ecclesiastes 
more than once, and we're going to look at it today, the author says, what a waste of time spending your whole life acquiring and learning and building and then handing it off to somebody else. What a waste of time. And to me, that kind of reflects the attitude of Hezekiah. Anyway, all that's for free. That has nothing to do with really the message today. But I have had an interest in Ecclesiastes, and I've read it many, many times. Last week, Kendrick introduced it to you and went through the first chapter. I would say that from the first chapter, I would look at chapter 1, verse 2. Are you there? Look at Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 2. And Ecclesiastes comes right after the book of Proverbs. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, in America today, the only time we use the word vanity is when we're talking about women in front of the mirror, I think. We don't use that word very much. That you're, well, there is a great song, You're So Vain. Now, maybe that's kind of vanity. But in this sense, vanity is talking about it's a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's vanity. What good is a vapor? Life is meaningless. That's what it's saying. And the author of this book, who's called the preacher, in fact, the word Ecclesiastes, another name for it in Hebrew is Koheleth, really means preacher. I'm the Ecclesiastes here today speaking to you. It's, It's somebody who speaks to an assembly. And he starts this book by saying, life is meaningless. Do you think life's meaningless? Do you know people who think life is meaningless? Raise your hand if you know somebody who think that thinks life is pretty... In our culture today, it's a growing and growing group of people that say life's meaningless. We just evolved from slime. We're here a while... And we go back to nothing. It's survival of the fittest. There is no meaning to life. And I want you to know that if you don't believe in God, then that's what you believe. Life is meaningless. Look at the end of chapter 1. So he starts by saying life is meaningless. But then he says in uh, verse 12, he says this. Verse 12, he says, The preacher had been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So what's the purpose of this book? This person, whichever king he was, applied his life to trying to search out the meaning of life, looking for wisdom. What is this all about? Why are we here? Why why do we live? Why do we work? Why do we love? And he searched out. That's what he's doing in this book is searching out the meaning of life. Let me cut to the chase. You know what he decides the meaning is? This Kinnick read this last week in the last chapter, chapter 12. He said, there's nothing better in life than to work, to apply yourself, and to pursue God and his principles, his commandments. Do you understand that without God, life is meaningless? You know, there's a... There was a person in charge of psychology at Northwest University in 1988. So this guy in charge of the psychology. Any of you ever taken psychology in college? 
Did that give you a lot of hope? <laughs> when I took psychology, it was way back in the early 1970s. And I am telling you, now there's good things about psychology. I'm not, I'm not saying throw it all out. All I'm telling you is my psychology class left me with a sense of, wow, that didn't help me very much. But this guy's the head of the psychology department at Northwestern University. And so what he did was he sent out a questionnaire to hundreds of teachers and writers and leaders and thinkers. He even sent it to comedians. And his question was, what do you think the meaning of life is? Let me tell you something. That's a great question to ask your friends, people that don't believe in God. If you don't believe in God, what do you think the meaning of life is? There are no good answers. Listen, listen to this. is just four or five of their answers. One psychoanalyst, Carl Jung, said, really, I don't know what the meaning or purpose of life is, but it looks exactly as if something were meant by it. <laughs> he doesn't believe in God, and so he says, I don't know what it is, but it looks like there is a meaning. He just hadn't found it yet. A novelist, a guy named Joseph Heller, said, I have no answers to the meaning of life and no longer want to search for any. Wow. Joseph Campbell, he's a, he's a religion scholar, comparative religion scholar. This guy teaches comparative religions. Life has no meaning. Each of us has meaning and we bring it to life. It is a waste to be asking the question when you are the answer. Sometimes I think our kids shouldn't go to college. I'm just saying. <laughs> now, I'm going to have you guess who this is. This person was asked, who's the meaning of life? He's a political leader. For me, life is continuously being hungry. The meaning of life is not simply to exist, to survive, but to move ahead, to go up, to achieve, to conquer. That was Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Now, let me ask you, are those, do you think those are fulfilling answers to the question of what's the meaning of life? No, they're empty. They're empty. They ask Albert Einstein that question. We don't study Albert Einstein much, but, you know, his theory of relativity and great, great mind. He's on TV now because he's on a, a, a phone ad, you know. Do you see Albert on the phone ad all the time? I mean, that guy's, he just keeps popping up, but that's not the real Albert. What is the meaning of human life? Or for that matter, of the life of any creature. This is Albert Einstein. To know an answer to this question means to be religious. Albert Einstein said there is no meaning to life without a God. And he believed in the God of the Bible. I don't know if you know that. He believed in the God of the Bible. And I want you to know something today. If you're here and you're searching for meaning in life, you're not going to find it until you find the God of the Bible. I'm just telling you that's true. That's true. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. But I want you to repeat something after me before we begin. Say, there is a God. There is a God. I have a purpose in life. To live for him on earth. And to live with him in heaven. And to live with him in heaven. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. 
You know, we need to verbalize those truths. People don't want to hear it, but they need to hear it. Because people are dying and going to hell, going, or going to an emptiness because they don't believe that truth. And we're to verbalize it. So let's look at chapter 2. Now remember, he's on a search for the meaning of life. And I've titled the sermon today, The Quest for Meaning in Life. We're going to read the first few verses, verses 1 down to verse 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said in my heart, now this is the king, the preacher. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Let's stop right there. Where is he looking for meaning in life? Pleasure. Is anybody in America looking for meaning in life and pleasure? Okay, I want us to look at the kinds of pleasures he tried. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Anybody looked for fulfillment in alcohol? My heart still guiding me with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Now there's a long list there, and I want to do something, and this is my way of arranging this. My mind arranges and organizes things. I had the curse of being an accountant, going to accounting school, and then being a lawyer. I mean, that re that'll really mess up your mind, <laughs> but I, I have to organize things. And as I looked at this list, here's how I organize it. You may want to jot this down on a piece of paper. I would say, number one, first point, he's looking for purpose in self-indulgence. Point number one. And there's three kinds of self-indulgence. Look at the first one. Laughter. Do you like a good comedian? Isaac, raise your hand. He loves to listen to comedians, and he just laughs and laughs and laughs. And I love good comedians. There is something good for the soul in laughter, is there not? But will you find meaning in la life through laughter? No. Look what he looked at next. He said, uh, how to cheer my body with wine. So he tried alcohol. Now, I'm, I don't want to get too personal here today. I don't drink now. There was a time when I did. I, I've chosen not to. And I don't think having a drink's a huge sin. I just choose not to for myself and my family. I don't want, I don't want that example for my grandkids. But how many of you have had a problem or know of somebody close to you, maybe in your family, that had a problem with alcohol? Yeah, all of us do. 
Can you find a meaning for, to life in alcohol? No. T it'll give you temporary. Skip down to verse 8. It says this. I also gathered for myself... The last part of it said, I got singers. Do people today look for meaning in music? I mean, that's who the American Idol is, right? If you can sing good. I want you to know music, I love music. I'm listening to it all the time. My wife and I listen and listen and listen. You have to be careful what you listen to, but there's great joy in music. But can you find the meaning of, for life there? And then look at the last one. And many concubines. Looking for satisfaction in sex. Is our culture, many people looking for fulfillment in sex? Yes, they are. So that list is laughter, alcohol, entertainment, sex. I call that list of things pleasure. Okay? You're looking for, for the purpose of life and pleasure. Now look at this second list. It's possessions. Look at verse 4. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water the forest and growing trees. He had houses. He had lands. Then look at verse, uh, in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves. I had herds and flocks. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. Possessions. Anybody in America looking for fulfillment in possessions? <laughs> Any of you tried that? I have a little. Does it work? Oh, temporarily. But the purpose of life is not acquiring possessions. Now, I would say God wants you to enjoy life. Even the things that, that we listed under pleasure, he wants you to have possessions. He just doesn't want them to control you. That's not where you find meaning. So self-indulgence in pleasure, self-indulgence in possessions. And then look at the last one. I call it pride. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. When he says I became great, he says, man, I got power. I'm the king. I've got possessions. I've got slaves. I've got concubines. I've got everything I need. But did all that bring him satisfaction and is that the reason, is that your purpose for living, to have pleasure, possessions, and pride? I want to read something really quickly because in these verses we find, I think, three things, pleasure, possessions, and pride, that is talked about elsewhere in the Bible. You may want to stay right where you are, but I'm going to go to 1 John, and I want to, I want to read these verses to you. And I want you to think about this. I want you to see if you agree with me that there's a parallel here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now watch this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other translations, it says, 
the lust of the flesh. He says, do not pursue the lust of the flesh. I would call that this, the first things we have, the pleasures. The lust of the flesh. You know, to drink or to, to overeat or to overindulge in sex. Those, the lust of the flesh is your body's desires controlling you. And, and in John, the apostle says, the lust of the flesh is not from God. Number two, he says, the lust of the eyes. What's the lust of the eyes? Man, look at that. Wouldn't I love to have that? It's covetousness. It's, it's idols, wanting idols. And look at what the writer of Ecclesiastes said. He had houses and lands and servants and flocks and herds and silver and gold. Idols with a small eye. And then the boastful pride of life is the third thing. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. And you identify those three things in the second chapter of Ecclesiastes. Now, you can also identify them in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve is tempted. Now, how does it happen there? Many of you, most of you will know the story. We know that God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the garden, of the tree, uh, tree of life, and, and what happened? Satan tempted Eve and she ate of it. Why did she eat of it? Because she saw it was good for food. Lust of the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And she saw that it would make her wise like God. Pride. There's those three things again. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the boastful pride of life. Those are the three areas that you're going to be tempted with. Every one of you. Satan takes, Satan, uh, takes Jesus, or Jesus goes into the wilderness after he's baptized. Remember this? How did he tempt Jesus? I haven't got time to go through the story, but if you read it, he said, look, I'll give it all to you, the lust of the eyes. Turn this, turn this rock into bread, the lust of the flesh. And he says, I'll give you all the kings of the world, the pride of life. He tempted Jesus the same way. Let me tell you something. We're all tempted that way. You need to ask, and I pray this, Lord, help me overcome the lust of the flesh, and I deal, I deal with it like you do. How about the lust of the eyes? I've got to have this, I've got to have this, I've got to have this, the, the idols. And then what about ego? Man, we all deal with that. I would ask the ladies, do you know any men that have a problem with ego? And men, do you know any ladies that have a problem with vanity? It's all pride, it's all ego. And I say it this way. There's three things you, you struggle with and that he's talking about here. It's evil, that's your passions. It's idols, and it's ego. Evil, idols, and ego. Say that. Evil, idols, and ego. Say it one more time. Evil, idols, and ego. We all deal with it. It's nothing new. This is 2,500 years ago. We may have computers today, and you know what that does? And our phones in our pocket, does that help us or hurt us when it comes to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life? It hurts us. We have to be careful. None of those things are evil in themselves unless you use them in a way that's not in keeping with God's word. Amen? And so he says... I tried everything. I, did, I indulged myself in every way possible in the pleasure, in the possessions, in the pride. And look at verse 11. What did he say, what did he, say he got for it? You guys read it silently. I've got to get back there. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11. This is his conclusion. Listen to this. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in its doing. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. We need to remember something. He's writing from before the time when Christ was born. If this is 2,500 years ago, it was 500 years before Jesus was born. And they didn't know anything about how Jesus would come and live. They knew the Messiah was coming, but they thought he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. They had no idea that Jesus was coming to overcome death. They had no idea that he was coming to bring salvation. And so he's talking from a pre-Jesus time. Do you understand? He didn't have what we have today. He's also talking from a worldly mindset. He's going to try all these things for years and years and years and years and find out they're meaningless and in the end turn to God. We know that from the book, okay? But at this time, he's trying everything. Question for you. Have any of you tried some of these things to find your meaning in life? I'm just curious. Any of you tried any of these things? Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And what did they bring? Well... They bring emptiness. Last Sunday, we had a great time at our church. We had a fella, his name's JR, who in his mid-late 40s decided these things were meaningless. In fact, he had tried these things. He's a, he's a manager at a Walmart doing well in the world. He's married, but for a second time, he and his wife have a child of their own. She's got two children. He's got another child. But he got off chasing some of these things, and his marriage was going to end. His job was in jeopardy. His life was in turmoil. You know what he decided to do? I'm going to give church a try. I'm going to give church a try. Anybody done that? <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> he came, and he began to listen. He heard about Jesus. He heard about the Bible. He, he heard that there is a spiritual realm. He heard that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, that these things in themselves are not evil, but we can't make our lives in these things. He confessed his sins, he's, even to his wife. He'd been having an affair, long-term affair. Asked her forgiveness. And last Sunday morning, he stood in the baptistry with 20 of his family members there, some still living the lifestyle he was rejecting of drugs and sex, and he gave his testimony. And the church clapped and clapped and clapped and clapped. Amen? He was baptized because he's given his life to Christ. My wife and I watched as he came back from being baptized. The service is going on, and his little son, Luke, ran up and just hugged his neck and hugged his neck and his wife. Is there life after all this stuff? Folks, there is. You live in a part of our state, in a part of the country, in a part of the world that worships these false gods that we've been talking about. Amen? And we have to be careful because they'll draw us in. You're not strong enough to fight these things, folks. Your flesh will win if you don't have Christ and if you don't have other believers helping you. So we find first that you look for meaning in self-indulgence. Say it again. There is a God. I have a purpose to live with to live for him on earth and to live with him in heaven. Let's look at part number two. And I won't take as long as these next ones. I think they'll be easier to cover faster. But it says in verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom 
and madness and folly. Now, folly is what we've just been talking about. But why in the world did he put madness in here? There are some people who believe, not many, that you're only in your right mind when you go mad or when you're on drugs or when you're not in your right mind. That's your right mind. And I didn't want to go there. That's madness. But primarily, he's looking at wisdom. And what does he mean by wisdom here? If you study scripture, the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. That means you believe there's a God and you believe his word's true. You hate evil and you're trying to follow him. The beginning of wisdom. But the wisdom he's talking about here is not necessarily that kind of wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. Now, what does worldly wisdom say? Worldly wisdom says work hard, study hard, you know, do, do the right thing and life will be all right. He's pursuing worldly wisdom. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? He's come after another king. So he's saying, okay, there's been these kings. Every one of them's in charge. Every one of them's all powerful. They're running the country. And I'm just another king. Only what has already been done. He said, what can I do? Well, I really am only doing what was done before. I can try to do it a little better. But there's really, he's already said there's nothing new under the sun. Verse 13. Then I saw that there is more to gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more to gain in light than in darkness. The one thing he did learn is living a life of common sense and doing the right thing, even without scripture, is, is more meaningful than just indulging yourself in everything and becoming an addict and all that. I mean, do you think life is somewhat better if you're just a mess on the streets because you've done everything wrong? Or is it somewhat better if you've got a family, you're going to your job, you're trying to be a good person? Well, there's some benefit to that, right? And he's saying, he's saying that's wisdom's better than darkness. Uh, wisdom's better than folly, like light's better than darkness. 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. What is he saying? Well, while you're alive, if you get a good job, you go to school and you do everything right and you make a good living and you take care of your family, that's better than being a derelict. But... You still face the same end. You're going to die. You're going to be buried. You see what I'm saying? And he's saying, so even though there's some benefit to living a good life, your end is the same. It's the grave. What does this remind us? This writer knows nothing about Jesus. This writer knows nothing about eternal life. You realize in the Jewish world then and the Jewish world when Jesus was alive, there was a debate between good God-fearing Jews. Some of them said there is no life after death, and others said there is, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, remember? And so the concept of life after death was not clear to them. It wasn't clear till Jesus came and preached and clarified it. And so he's saying, yeah, if you live earthly-wise, you do the right thing, that's better than not, but you still end up going to the grave. Does that make sense? And so what does he conclude? Look at verse 16. For the wise, as for the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, 
seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This guy's really optimistic, isn't he? (laughs) Encouraging. But let me tell you something. It's here for a reason. God is trying to help us understand that even, you've heard this said, you ask somebody, why are you going, you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, I'm a good person. Being a good person has some benefit in this life. You don't have all the problems that the derelict and the drunk and everybody has. But do you have real fulfillment? No, you don't. And so what he's saying is that even worldly wisdom, I pursued worldly wisdom and it was vanity. It was worthless. It held no meaning. Now remember his job, he's trying everything under the sun to find meaning in life. How's he doing so far? Say, not so good. (laughs) Not so good. He's tried pleasure. He's tried possessions. He's tried pride and power. Now he's trying worldly wisdom. And his conclusion is the same. In the end, it's all vanity. Let's try one more. We'll first say, um, there is a God. I have a purpose purpose. to live for him on earth earth. and to live with him in heaven. Let's, this is the third section. He's going to try one more thing. He's going to try looking at his legacy. Now, before we read this, I want you to think about something. What will your legacy be? What's a legacy? It's what you leave behind, right? Do you think there's any meaning in leaving a good legacy? Say yes. yes. Did Jesus live for himself? Did he indulge himself? No. Everything he did was for the people of then and for us today. If you look at scripture, I want you to understand something. It teaches a principle. Now, this is not in scripture, the words I'm going to say, but the principle is there. The righteous person lives for the next generation. Okay? Now, remember I mentioned King Hezekiah. He didn't live that way. That's why one of the reasons I think he's the author... Let's look at what the writer of Ecclesiastes thought about legacy. He's tried pleasure, he's tried possessions, he's tried pride and power, and he's tried earthly wisdom. Let's see what he tries next. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Question. Do you think it's a waste of time to live your your life in a way that impacts your children, your grandchildren, and other people who are going to outlive you? No. But he does. He thinks it's a waste of time. He says, I'm going to do all this work. I'm going to acquire all these possessions. I'm going to build this great empire. And I'm going to turn it over to somebody. I don't even know if they're going to be wise or not. Well, wait a minute. It's his son. Should he know whether that son knows God? Should he know whether that son knows how to live for God? Of course he should, but I want you to know Hezekiah didn't. His 15-year-old son Manasseh became king and destroyed everything he had done. Question. 
Is there any greater joy in life than watching children and grandchildren live for the Lord? Now, I want you to know something. That transition is one of the hardest in life, passing on your faith. Why? Because you can't control your kids and your grandkids. You can teach them and train them, but does that mean they'll always follow the Lord? Say no. Why? Because they've got free will. And there comes a time that all you can do is pray for them. And if you praying for kids and grandkids today, amen. amen. But this writer said it was vanity to turn everything over to the next generation. I want you to know something. That should be your greatest joy. I just retired three years ago as president of the Baptist Foundation. I tell you that because I was there almost 30 years. Put my heart and soul into it. But how long does it take for them to forget you? Anybody been through that? (laughs) But I want you to know, that's not a problem for me. You know why? I got the the chance to nominate the guy that took my place. I said, this would be a good president of the foundation. I got the chance to work with him. I got the chance to turn it over to him. And you know what I get to do today? I get to watch the foundation doing fabulously in the hands of a new leader. There should be no more joy... That's the kind of joy you should have as a Christian. You know what John, the apostle, said in 3 John? I forgot the verse, Debbie, the address. But in 3 John, there's only one chapter. This is Debbie in my life verse. John, the apostle, writing, I have no greater joy than this. You know what it is? Than hearing that my children are walking in truth. I have no greater joy. That's what we as Christians should do. It's not about us. It's about us living for the Lord. It's serving the Lord and then handing it off to the next generation. Amen? Now, you probably don't know the pastor that was here three or four pastors ago, do you? You don't know their name. But aren't you glad they worked to establish this church and build these buildings? And you're, you're reaping the benefit. Was, was that pastor who's long gone because you don't remember his name, does that mean his life is meaningless? No. Do you understand that your life has impact beyond your life? And we need to begin to think and pray and give and plan past our lifetimes. That's called legacy. But the writer of Ecclesiastes said, I hated my toil because I think, man, I'm doing all this work and then I'm going to give it to that kid. And he'll probably just blow it all. And I want you to know that happens a lot in America. But our job should be training that generation so we can hand it to them. What did Jesus say? He was getting ready to go back to heaven, and he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus spent his whole ministry training 12, now this is not in the Bible, knuckleheads. (laughs) They didn't get it. One turned against him. But Jesus' whole ministry was about training those twelve. What's your life about? Is it about enjoying life, having fun? It is. It shouldn't be. Who said that? (laughs) It's all right to have a little fun back there. (laughs) By the way, I got to go in and say hello to these guys. They're back. Aren't you glad this group is back? They don't have physical sight, but they're back in church today. Yeah. It's all right. Now, listen, I am not saying you shouldn't have fun. Are you hearing me? But that isn't the purpose of your life. Your purpose of life 
is to live for, is to live for God while you're on this earth, to follow his commandments. And he says, man, it's a waste. It's a waste. I think it's our highest calling to get ready to turn it over to the next generation. And when John said, I have no greater joy than hearing that my children are walking in truth, he wasn't talking about his physical children. He was talking about his spiritual children. Tonight, Debbie and I are going to get to go to a service at a great church in Bakersfield. You've probably never heard of it. It's called Valley Baptist Church. It's great because right down the street, there's a a Mormon church. And this Baptist church in Bakersfield is like three, four times as big as that big Mormon church. It's a huge church. It started out very small, and Roger Spradlin and two other pastors got together. They joined their churches, bought property, built a building, and grew this church to 2,000 or more on Sunday morning. And Roger Spradlin is one of my favorite preachers in the world. He's on the radio and TV around the world. He and his associate pastor, Phil Neighbors, have been preparing for the last four or five years to turn the church over to the next leaders. Roger Spradlin's son, Andrew, and another pastor are going to be the co-pastors to take over for his father, Roger, and his friend, Phil. They were supposed to make that transition this summer, but just two months ago, Roger Spradlin, this pastor that's been so faithful at this church for over 30 years, was found to have cancer. And they only given him a few months to live. Tonight, we're going to be a part of that service, just attend, where a father who's dying, who's been faithful in ministry, is going to say to his son, I'm giving this ministry to you to lead. And the church is going to say thank you to Roger, who only has a few months at best to live. He'll be there in a wheelchair. And he's hoping that he's, he won't have all the issues he's been dealing with. So my question to you is that is this. Is Roger's life meaningless because he's going to die? No. Why? Because he spent his life serving the Lord and getting ready for tonight. I will tell you this. Roger will have more joy tonight, even though he's dying of cancer, of seeing his son become the pastor of that church. Folks, life is not meaningless. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you just don't understand the context and the setting, you would say it is. But remember, the writer is is looking back on his life and he's saying, I tried all these things. I tried all these things and they don't work. Let me finish reading. Verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart to despair. What happens when you look to these things? You'll have despair if you try to put your life into them. Over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who does not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart, which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. You know, your life can be full of despair and sorrow if you chase these things. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. What does that mean? The stress of it all can keep you from sleep at night. And so chasing all these things can lead to despair and sorrow and stress. Are those things in America today, distress and sorrow and anxiety? Oh, and despair. Despair leads to things like suicide. And I don't want to talk about that long, but folks, suicide in America is growing and growing and growing. And the reason is people are looking for the meaning of life in the wrong places. And so he says, 
For all the days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. But then he comes to the conclusion. Uh, now, he's going to repeat this conclusion more often, but he says, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This is also in vanity and striving after the wind. Did you see he added the word joy here? When God enters the equation and you learn that pleasure and possessions, when you learn that even success in life, when you learn that passing on a legacy, those are all gifts from God and you enjoy them with God's blessing, he gives you the gift of joy. And joy is not just fun and happiness. Joy is an inner sense that God's good. God's real. My life is not meaningless. Even if you only impact one person for good, your life is not meaningless. It's not meaningless. Say it again. There is a God. I have a purpose. To live for God on earth. And to live with God. In heaven. I want to pray for you today as we close. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. And as they come, I want you to think about your life. What changes do you need to make? You know the difference between preaching and teaching? There's only one difference, main difference. Teaching, you're giving knowledge. Preaching, you're giving knowledge and asking people to change. Now, the Bible calls that to repent. It means to turn around and go in a different direction. I don't know what you need to change in your life. I watch too many movies. You have a trouble that we have finding a decent movie to watch these days? How many of you struggle finding a decent movie to watch? Hey, man. There's so much garbage out there. So, what are you pursuing? Are you pursuing God? Are you trying to put him first in your life? Now, folks, nobody ever gets this totally right. But it's, a, it's what you're trying to do. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you understand that 500 years or more after this was written, Jesus was born. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified. Not for anything wrong he had done. But the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he, that's either true or he was a lunatic or a liar. I believe it's true. And if you've never said, Lord, I believe that's true too. I don't understand, but I believe, God, you're real. I believe you sent your son that he died for my sins. Would you forgive me of my sins and would you come into my life? Jesus called that being born again spiritually. And if, if you've done that, it still means you still have this flesh to, to wrestle with. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but you're striving to live according to God's word. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to ask you to stand and let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for every person here today. Lord, we're not much. We fail so often, but I pray in the mighty name of Jesus, the power of his shed blood, in the authority of his position as the Son of God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in people's hearts today. That if, 
if there's someone here that's never said, Lord, I'm going to give you a try. Forgive me of my sins. And I want Jesus' spirit to come and live within me. I pray that that, they, that prayer would be prayed today in, in, in the hearts of people here. And Father, if there are people that have already prayed that prayer and they belong to you, but they haven't been living for you like they should, I pray today they would repent and say, Lord, I want to do better. Forgive me. Show me how to follow you better. Work in people's hearts and minds today, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm going to be standing here at the front. You may need prayer. Maybe you want to share that you've made that decision. One final word. The Bible, Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. Being a Christian is not secret service. If you're in his army, you've got to wear the uniform. So as we sing, if you want to come, I'll be here. Let's sing.